All right, hey everyone, welcome to uh, another episode of Off the Pulpit. I'm Eugene. I'm Jason. I'm Thomas. We're three pastors and three friends conversing on life, culture, and church off the pulpit. Uh, Again, really excited to have a special episode. We have a special guest. We recorded a little while back, but we had uh, John Mark Comer, who was the founding pastor of Bridgetown in Portland, who's now kind of a a pastor at large, author author at large. So really excited to share with you his interview. But really quick, um, a couple of mailback questions just to get through before we get to that. Um, First, we'll, we'll do light first. Uh, Tom, I think people were really surprised that you listened to charismatic worship. I don't know why, but people were asking, what is your favorite charismatic worship song? My favorite charismatic worship song. I don't know if there if there's a particular song, but I've been digging uh, Maverick City a lot. Yes. yes. So I just have them looping in my background. Yes. I think me and Jason are, are right there. Um Cool. Another question we got, I, I guess, is for all of us. Um, what does your weekly schedule and rhythm look like, except like Sabbath, family, ministry work? I think people are just kind of curious for, for all of us. It's going to be hard to answer this question without getting in trouble by my wife, <laughs> because she's going to be like, you're lying. Um, that is like the, you know, in in all honesty, you know, finding a rhythm of rest and Sabbath is something that's been really hard for me Mm. um something that i struggle with greatly um yeah yeah well i mean jason you me and tom both tell you jason's the one pastor at church that's too big to have one pastor so that's he he needs some help but yeah tom any 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 uh small tips or i i guess previews in your window of, of how you kind of schedule your week man i think when you have young kids it's pretty hard to have something super consistent yeah, it's like that's just kind of the stage we're all in. So mm-hmm. I'm like Jason. I try to find week by week some day to have a Sabbath, but it's oftentimes more dynamic than not. Yeah, I think with kids, with multiple, all of us have multiple kids, like under five. Like it's just it's just day by day, like hour by hour. Sometimes we're just trying mm-hmm. to figure out mm-hmm. life. So I hope we don't disappoint any of you. Uh, a couple of the questions. In light of the tribal and, and EMKM episodes, as someone who has grown up and continues to attend a first generational Chinese church probably in the Bible and gospel tribe, and I attend the EM side. Do you have any suggestions on how to make an impact or change in that setting? I I think there's, you know, I I think with what we're talking about, I I think we can undersell the blessings of being in a church like that because you have older people around you. I think in a lot of our settings, the lead pastor is usually the oldest person at that church and there are some dangers to that that you don't have and there's a sense of family there. So I don't know how much you could like impact but maybe just to learn to like where can you count your blessings and joys i don't know if you could add anything else jason yeah i mean and i would say definitely relational capital is important in that sense you know i think depending on who gives me um advice you know depending on my relationship with them you know like when they've made suggestions about ways we could change things to bring in some of the good parts of other tribes, even into our context. Yeah. Um, so much, like so many times it's my relationship with them. That is the catalyst to whether or not I take, I take their suggestions seriously, you know? Mm. And so, um, I do think if you are committed to the community and, you know, you feel like there are areas that, um, the community can improve and continue to grow in different ways. Um, I do think, just kind of being a spectator and making comments from the outside definitely will not have an impact. Yeah. Um, I think, you know, connecting yourself uh, even deeper to the community, serving, um, building that relational capital is going to be really important. Yeah. Last question. And, and this is, I don't, again, we might add this out, but I think in light of the interview that we just did, this might be good to answer. As a believer, um, I don't believe in, nor do I support abortion. But is this something that we, the Christian community, should be trying to make legal? Is it not enough to just believe what I believe and not partake in it? Or is it biblical and necessary to fight for this to be made into the law, especially for non-believers who don't understand our beliefs? I personally feel like the way that Christian conservatives take the pro-life stance sometimes does more harm than good. I'm going to be honest. like We received a lot of questions on this, um, and, and I had to stem away because of, of a lot of reasons. But I, I think... It, this might be a, a helpful framing to kind of answer. Um, so like just with the idea of abortion, this could be any other issue, but where's the line where we draw 
in our political activity and in our own kind of public speaking about this? I think that's a good question for our listeners to hear our thoughts on. Uh, two quick thoughts would be, one, I completely agree. I do think the more conservative Christian circles have approached this topic in a very poor way. It's very non-compassionate to women. I think it's only speaking in a very harsh way, uh, pushing for uh, what they believe their stance should be regarding this complicated topic. And so I completely agree with that. Now, in terms of the idea of like, well, what should we do apart from having a conviction or a stance regarding like the laws or so forth? I always say this, uh, we all have an idea or standard of human flourishing. Whether you're a Christian, if you're not a Christian, and the way you vote or the way that you push legislation, it's going to not be neutral. It's always going to be based upon some type of standard that you have of what human flourishing looks like. For some people, you have a humanist standard of what that is. For some people, you have a Christian understanding. For some people, you have an Eastern understanding. It's all influenced by something, and we should not be shy about that. And so, mm-hmm. obviously, if it doesn't turn out the way that we want it to, that's okay. We live in a democracy. But at the same time, we do vote based upon our convictions and based upon how we view human flourishing. And so I do think it should uh, it should doesn't just stay at a conviction level, but um, you should be at, not afraid to participate in legislation. At the same mm-hmm. time, doing it winsomely when we talk about it publicly. Yeah, I mean, I, I, I think with this issue, there are a whole bunch of false dichotomies happening. Um, you know, I think even the language of um, supporting abortion and being against abortion, even that language I think is dangerous and it's heavily, it's, it's, there, there's too much convergence there with a political agenda um, because I can tell you, I talk to just as many uh, people who vote pro-choice who are against abortion, who want the abortion rates to go down. And so um, one thing is I, I think we have to be aware of some of the different cultural forces at play. And I think you have to really start asking different kinds of questions and get to the heart of the angst. And the second thing I would say, especially when we um, talk about issues like this, to just piggyback off of uh, what Tom said, you know, to quote from the, the Mars Hill podcast, you know, with anything, you have to ask yourself who benefits um, and, and who does it harm. And a lot of times uh, the way we've debated these issues on both sides uh, actually harms the people we are supposedly fighting for, um, the women. Um, and, um, and so I think that there is um, a way to talk about these issues um, that I, I just think we're not, as Christians, we're not thinking about that enough. And we're just kind of falling in line uh, with the culture wars and we're just giving into, you know, being, you know, making everything super black and white and giving into that temptation um, to just be, to, to elevate one side and demonize the other. And so it's very nuanced. I think it takes a lot of conversation there. Mm. Yeah, I think both of them answered it really well. I, I, I think, though, the biggest thing I would say is we just got to talk. It's going to be heated by I, churches, leaders, members, all of this. We got to stop just like, you know, not talking about these issues, whether it's because we don't care or because we don't want to seem some type of way. Um, I think the lack of discussion, especially in our circles, has done more harm than good. Um, so I think it's even good to even bring this up, up in your church settings, I think is a helpful way to kind of pave a way forward together. So with that, um, again, thanks for all the questions. Our mailbag is always open. Our DMs are always open. So feel free to ask us anytime. But with that, uh, we have our interview with John Mark Comer. We talk about his new book, Live No Lies. So really excited for you uh, to listen to that. We hope you're blessed uh, and hope you enjoy it. Well, welcome to another episode of Off the Pulpit. We have a really special guest that we're really excited to have. We have former lead pastor of Bridgetown, John Mark Comer. He is the uh, co-host of This Cultural Moment, a best-selling author of several books, which includes Live No Lies, which we're going to chat about. Um, but yeah, and, and we want to also congratulate you on, on a successful transition out of Bridgetown. So uh, we're really blessed to have you on, John. So thanks for coming on. No, it's my honor and joy to chat with you three better than one interviewer i get three that's just like <laughs> level up yeah 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 <laughs> a little intimidating the... i have you in gallery view on zoom so i see all three of you and it's just a little like whoa what's what's about to happen next <laughs> we'll, we'll be gentle i promise but um but yeah i i guess they get could you give us just context a little bit about what's going on in your life because i i know a lot of things have been happening and it might be helpful for our listeners to know too 
Yeah, um, I just released a book called Live No Lies, as you said, as we're recording this, it is uh, less than a week old. I'm not sure when this will hit the internet. And two weeks before that, I finished an 18 year run at Bridgetown Church, which is a church that myself and a number of other family members and community planted together 18 years ago. And it was my privilege to serve as the pastor for teaching and vision until two weeks ago. So we're still in Portland. Uh, we're heading out on a very long sabbatical, but upon our return, we're still in the community, but I've stepped out of that kind of lead pastor role in order to found a new nonprofit called Practicing the Way, which doesn't really exist yet other than a landing page on a website and a fundraiser dinner we're putting on in a few days, nice. but it's a dream and we're, we're starting to work very hard already on it. We want to create formation resources for churches and small groups. So Practicing the Way is basically a simple, beautiful way to integrate formation into your local church or small group or with a community of followers of Jesus. So kind of as I move into the second half of life, we started everything really young. I got married at 21 years old. We church planted at 23 years, wow. 23 oh, years wow. old, none of which I recommend by any stretch of imagination. <laughs> I can tell you horror stories of like both gone wrong, but uh, my wife and I are still together by the grace of God, just had our 20th wedding anniversary put in 18 years at Bridgetown. And so even though I'm just, you know, 21 or sorry, for, not 21, 41, <laughs> uh, we still kind of, we feel like we're entering the second half of life. So as we kind of move into the second half, we, we have some, a lot of stuff on our heart. We just want to serve the church at large in particular in the area of formation and, uh, and, and so on and so forth. So I hope to write and teach out of a local church and, and serve the larger church with formation resources. Was was that always part of the plan, or was that something that got stirred in you in your heart in recent years? Um, I would say it's been stirred in my heart for about ten years. About ten years ago, um, I was leading a church. It had it had grown really fast, and uh, I, I about ten years ago, I had my first inkling of I don't know that I'm the best fit to be the lead pastor of a church, hmm. and I wonder if I would serve better as a teaching pastor and kind of spiritual director. And that was a new kind of paradigm for me 10 years ago to think of myself not as a lead pastor when I am older. Yeah. But um, since then, it has just been building ahead of steam. And eight years ago, we went on our last sabbatical, almost didn't come back. I felt like a failure as a leader, felt like I had no business serving at leading a church. And I had a great job opportunity in California, where I'm from, in the sun as a teaching pastor. And I came this close but just did not feel a release from the spirit or my community. It's really good mentors in my life who basically told me why I should not do it then, uh, but down the road. So it's been a long time coming. And I think I've kind of long known my life will probably have a first half and a second half. And the second half will probably be more teaching direction, working with pastors, uh, writing as opposed to, leading a church, which as you guys know, is that's a, it's a lot, it's a lot of work and it's all consuming. Mm. And, uh, you know, as you get older, you can whatever you work in, whether it's as a pastor or as a artist or a software engineer or a whatever you, you kind of start to discover the things that you're best at. And more and more, you just kind of want to do those things over and over and over again, if at all possible. And I know that that is a function of privilege and not everybody gets that chance with their work. I fully understand that. But that um, has been very much my heart. So I'm, I'm hoping to do just more and more of what I think I can serve good with in coming coming years. I sure. mean, I got to say from the outside looking in, um, you know, it, it's been really encouraging to see that transition happen. Um, just because you don't you don't see um, smooth transitions like that all the time in the church mm -hmm. world, let alone uh, a church yeah. of, of, of your size. And so, you know, it, it genuinely seems like you and... Tyler, love each other, and and that's, oh, we do. that in and of itself is, is really encouraging. Yeah, in as fact, pastors. we're going to have to end this podcast on time because I'm going to hang out with him and just take a walk and see how he's doing and see how his soul's holding up after a couple weeks on the job. Awesome! <laughs> wow. Awesome. Yeah, Tyler said to me a couple of days ago, he's like, "I feel like somebody asked me like, how's it going?" And they were kind of asking for the dirt, like, "What's the backstory?" And he's like, "This is like maybe the only time in my ministry life where the public story has been the same as the private story." Oh, great! You know, and he didn't say that in a cynical yeah. way, but in a, <laughs> you know, he's a wonderful person and 
it's been such a, a steep learning curve, but I, I've learned a lot through this process of what it's like to pass off a church. And, you know, you guys know coming in on the other side, and I was on the receiving end of that once, and it was very painful. And uh, I think now that I've been through it, I have almost no judgment on the founding pastors mm-hmm. or lead pastors that really don't do that well, because yeah. it's really hard. And, um, I, you know, just experiencing that from the inside out, I did my very best, but it was not perfect by any stretch of the imagination. Yeah. And, uh, it's really hard. So I don't have judgment, but, um, we've had so many people reach out and say, yeah, it's so healing or so refreshing. And I didn't think I realized how many people have been hurt by poor transitions of, of lead mm-hmm. pastors and churches. And apparently it's quite a few people, you know? Yes, I think. Yeah. So you nail on the head, but as pastoring, it's incredible that you wrote books and um, you actually wrote really helpful, insightful books. And the most recent one, of course, is Live No Lies. We want to chat a little bit about that too, because uh, I got it. I was the quickest read that I was able to read through. It was extremely insightful, underlined way too much to a point where I was like, this is just no point because I'm underlining too much. But I guess just to give the context, <laughs> Live No Lies, the idea, the subtitle is recognizing, or sorry, recognize and resist three enemies that sabotage your peace. And you talk a lot about demonic attacks. And I was expecting knowing that a certain bend, but it was completely different. And I guess just to help our listeners, like what kind of led you to write this book, especially kind of as the last one as a lead pastor at Bridgetown? Yeah. I mean, gosh, this, I I don't want to go on a rabbit trail. Um, You know, most of the books are born out of a combination of personal experience, just like, where is God leading me? What is God forming in me? But then pastoral experience, like where, where is there an intersection between that and the felt need of people in our church. And, you know, similar, all three of you guys, I'm in this very secular, you know, I mean, Portland is the least religious city in America, not just least Christian, least religious, very progressive, you know, similar to, you know, LA for sure where you are, Jason, but even, uh, but less diverse, which makes it even more liberal because it is more in the ideological space, you know, like I think LA and San Francisco, some of these areas, because they're ethnically diverse and socioeconomically more diverse, there's a bit of a grounding, you know, because as you know, uh, minorities tend to be more socially conservative. So they often function, I think, as a, as an anchor point to reality for some of our liberal cities, but Mm. Portland is the, is arguably the whitest, or third widest, depending on your metric, uh, city, large city in America. And so that means it's just like super far left. (laughs) So I, here I am in this like very secular, very progressive, very ideological. I I say that not to like touch on racial touchstones, more just to talk honestly about the ideological nature of my city, which is horrible to live in. And yet really helpful for me as a pastor, because I'm living in such a concentrated form of these secular ideologies and progressive ideologies. And I get to watch them play out in real time on the street, you know, and like if Portland is the future and I don't think it is the future, I think it's a future. Mm -hmm. I I think the word from the future is like, this is not the utopia that we were told it would be. This is, Mm -hmm. there's, there's a dark, if you look back, you know, LA is the same, San Francisco is the same. If you look past the like Instagram veneer, of, you know, like we have the best coffee and the best restaurants and street art and urban planning and people on bicycles and, you know, like all that and people with good fashion. If you can look past that to the actual people and the actual emotional atmosphere, um, it's, it's pretty bleak, you know, like dark would be a very Christian word. And that's, I think that's an appropriate biblical motif, you know, for the felt experience of it. So All that to say, living in this city, you know, one of the first things you realize is that formation, which is my driving passion, we don't start with a blank slate, you know, so it's Romans chapter 12, do not be conformed to the world, but be transformed by the renewing of your mind. And that's that word, Greek word, metamorpho, where the language of formation comes from. Mm. So Paul, in Paul's rubric of formation or whatever you want to, there's different words used throughout church history from theosis in the ancient church to sanctification and the evangelical church to formation is the, the more popular word in the circles I run in now, whatever you want to call this process of the growth and expansion of the soul into Christ-like character through union with Christ himself, whatever word you want to put on that formation is the new Testament word. 
um, Paul's in Paul's rubric, we don't start with a blank slate. It's not like this is a whiteboard or this is a lump of clay. How do we form this person into the image of Jesus? You start with a person who's already been deformed by not just sin, but by the, by the wider culture, you know? So don't be conformed to like Rome had already turned these people into Romans before Paul got there mm. to attempt to turn these Romans into Christians. Mm. And so all Christian spiritual formation is counter formation. And I've just began to realize in my own personal life and then for sure in my pastoral life that so many people are walking into my church and they, they have a, some level of a love of, for Jesus and find Jesus compelling. I mean, they're there, they're at church in a city like Portland, but they're still living from this, set or collection of secular assumptions about what is good and beautiful and true that are deforming them. And that's the mm -hmm. thing, you know, for us pastors that we all know is that the world is often doing a way better job discipling and forming our people than we are, you know? And part of that's because we get them for maybe two hours every second or third week, depending on, you know, and the world gets them all the time, every time they open up their iPhone, every time they go online, every time they walk into the office, like every time they drive down the street, the world is forming all of us, you know? So a lot of this book was born out of that, like how do we create a discipleship culture, a church culture that is counter formation so that we're not all deformed and just sucked into the kind of gravitational pull of secularism. I noticed you kind of used as a foundation of the title of your book, which is Live No Lies. You yes. chose to call it like a lie. I'm sure it wasn't just for the alliteration, but there might be another reason why you chose that particular word. Like how would how would you explain the reason why you call it like we're not just struggling with the problem of lying, but we are living a lie in itself. Like how do you yes. flesh that out? Yes. Yeah. And I'm that language I'm getting straight from Jesus himself. So the wireframe of the book, this isn't the like why I wrote it or why you read it, but the, the wireframe of the book is this ancient Christian paradigm uh, that goes back to the desert fathers and mothers in the third and the fourth century, where they, I, they, they kind of gave to us so much. They kind of started the formation movement, though they would not have used that language but they gave to us this idea of spirituality as struggle, right? Based on their reading of the New Testament, in particular of Paul, and in particular of Jesus in Matthew four and Luke four. And they, they identified what they called the three enemies of the soul, which were this like counter trinity to the father, the son, and the Holy Spirit. And who were in this locked in a struggle or, or war was actually imagery they used a lot, even though they were all pacifists for the most part. Um, with the Father and the Son and the Spirit and the kingdom of God. And they identified these three enemies based on their reading of Jesus in the New Testament as the world, the flesh, and the devil. So the book, that's the wireframe for the book, is like three parts on the world, the flesh, and the devil. This is an ancient Christian paradigm that was key to Christian spirituality and intellectual thought for over a thousand years, and then was kind of lost in the last few you know, years and decades, or arguably the last century, in the Western church at least. And, you know, if you hear it, it's from like a fundamentalist preacher with a bull, bullhorn or it's like a passing comment. So what I wanted to do was to take this ancient paradigm and update it, not theologically, I'm actually trying to recapture the theology, but update the kind of language and, and the kind of contextualization for our secular culture and very sophisticated culture that we live in now. You know, what, what does the world, what does the flesh, what does the devil look like in a world mm. where most of us laugh, scoff at the idea of the devil is like, a pre-modern myth, you know, with like Thor's hammer and Santa Claus or something like that, you know, mm. or the Yeti or whatever. So in part one on the devil, where the, to your question, where the, does the lies language come from? This is where the desert fathers and mothers in particular, there's one that I really just find captivating who's, who's done so much to imprint on my brain and my view of the world. His name was Evagrius Ponticus, also known as Evagrius the Solitary, which as an introvert, he can be like my patron saint. I just love <laughs> that name. <laughs> but he was um, Turkish kind of originally from Iberia, intellectual, who moved out to the deserts of North Africa to pray. And he wrote this book called uh, Talking Back, subtitles amazing, a monastic handbook for combating demons, mm -hmm. which is just amazing. Mm -hmm. And he's one of many desert fathers and mothers, but he's arguably one of the most brilliant. And he was a, a well-respected theologian and controversial at times, but well-respected. And there, his and the desert fathers and mothers reading 
of Jesus' interaction with Satan in Matthew 4 and Luke 4, the temptation narrative, just was like out of left field for me and kind of changed my entire paradigm of what uh, Protestants call spiritual warfare, which is not language used in the New Testament, but the, the basic gist that there's a, there's a war, there's a, a struggle, there's a pushback, there's an oppositional force. That is a, obviously a thoroughly biblical idea. And they interpreted both Jesus' teaching in Matthew 8, which is arguably Jesus' most in-depth teaching on the devil, which is where he has this famous line, you shall know the truth, the truth shall set you free, which if you reverse engineer that is simultaneously saying that we're in bondage to lies. And then, which is why right after that, he calls the devil the father of lies, says when he lies, he speaks his native language for there is no truth in him. So that's really interesting. Like when Jesus does this in-depth teaching on the devil, he does not mention all of the things I would expect him to mention. Demonization, um, a natural disaster or a tsunami, illness, disease, death, a poltergeist, a horrifying nightmare. I think all of those have biblical uh, precedent. And uh, But when Jesus does his teaching on it, he doesn't mention any of that. What does he talk about? He talks about deception, the role of lies in our, in our deformation that enslave us into these false narratives about it true. And that was Evagrius and the Desert Fathers kind of reading of Matthew 4 and Luke 4. They said when Jesus went out to fight Satan, that those stories don't read like a Marvel movie where Jesus and Satan are like flying around, throwing lightning bolts at each other through the thunderstorm. It reads like a quiet critical conversation between mm. two very intelligent people about truth mm. and lies. And so they would say the primary strategy of the enemy against us, not the only one, but the primary one is to implant lies or deceptive ideas in our mind and our imagination. And they would trace that from uh, the garden of Eden and Adam and Eve and that temptation all the way up to Jesus and then to their own life in the deserts of North Africa. And that's kind of the, the paradigm that I'm trying to recapture in this book that what if the devil is not like a silly little, you know, cartoon or Will Ferrell and SNL, like playing bad, you know, B-level electric <laughs> guitar. What if he is an immaterial, but real intelligence that in Jesus teaching, we, which we have to take seriously is the most powerful being on earth. And what if his primary strategy to drive our soul and our society into ruin is lies or deceptive ideas implanted in our mind and our imagination. It's it's kind of an exploration of that. Now, I'm mean, along those same lines. You know, I guess I know a question a lot of our listeners would have is how do you engage thoughtfully, you know, amidst the culture wars we're living in right now, without kind of being sucked in? Because I think that language of truth and lie, that's language being used by both sides right now, conservative, yes. liberal, Democrat, Republican, and all of their, you know, both sides are urging their followers not to be deceived by the lies of the other side. Hmm. And so how do you kind of, how, how do you navigate that in, in, in a way that is faithful uh, to our apprenticeship to Jesus? <laughs> that's a great question what do you have it coached me here past me you know <laughs> i mean i mean first i think we have common ground where most everybody agrees this is a major problem so whether they're coming from the right or the left you know it was um obama had that great line a while back i quote him in the book when he was on uh letterman's my next guest needs no introduction and this is not a political statement for against obama it's just a, a good quote he said uh you know, the major problem in our democracy is the degree to which we do not share a common baseline of facts. Hmm. And, you know, conspiracies, theories on the right, arguably some of the critical theories on the left, which I think function exactly the same psychologically. Hmm. Um, and uh, I think both of those are great examples of this major problem right now. So I, I, think, I think most people can agree this is a major problem. But I mean, I have the same thing. I literally had two really thoughtful, good Christians whom if I said their names, you would most likely know both of them or know of both of them, come to me after reading part of my book about the vaccine. 
And mm. one basically made the case, I think this vaccine is the greatest lie the enemy is pulling over American culture, da, da, da. And this was like not some right wing, this is a thoughtful person. Yeah. And the other said, you know, vaccines have done more to save human life than any human innovation in human history. Satan's goal is to wreck life. So I think this is a demonic lie trying to erode people's trust in the vaccine, which God is using to save their life. These were two like incredible, thoughtful Christians. These are not like left and right wing crazies. And they both were like reading my book thinking, yes, this is a lie on different sides of the vaccine. So I will not even tell you what I think about either. But I think <laughs> that, that just goes to your, to your, you know, to the problem. So pastor me, coach me, I'm all ears. Answer your own question. I'm no help to you. I mean, I do, I do think there is a kind of, you know, uh, my friend AJ Swoboda has this great metaphor of spiritual triangulation, and he's just mm-hmm. talking about discernment in general, whether it's discernment of doctrine or discernment of, you know, should I move to this new city or take this new job? If you think of, as I understand surveyors, you need three points. I'm like the opposite of good at math, but you need three points, triangulation, to locate something and measure the distance. And so, you know, if you take the kind of classic Christian triangulation of scripture, community, and prayer, um, you know what I mean? There's Mm. something in that kind of three-point spiritual discernment process of what does scripture say what are what is community and mentor Mm. kind of the sages the elders around me say and then prayer and not just meaning like what do i want but like ignatian discernment and death to self and surrender to god and when you're quiet with the spirit where do you feel the confirmation of the correction of the current of the spirit in your heart you know I, I, that's really helpful. Um, I, I think even that, that's not even the book. So that's like an added bonus for our listeners. But with that being said, <laughs> it seems like this book, and I think a lot of your books is pushing the one way to combat this is the spiritual disciplines, or I think how you yes. put it, and I like it better, the spiritual practices. Um, yes. One question I wanted to ask you, and John, if you don't want to answer this, we can edit this out. We already talked about this. We're three of us are semi reformed in our background. Yes. Um, I love this because it is kind of a new thing that wasn't completely emphasized. But I have heard um, reform critics, uh, especially the Jamie's book, uh, Jamie James K. Smith's book, um, "You Are What You Love," that a lot of this habituation talk is just self-help uh, dressed up as legalism, right? Mm-hmm. And, and there's people that kind of press that, and I, I find yeah, some of that critique is honest, but some of it can break down. But I guess for you, as someone that kind of is promoting a rule of life and spiritual disciplines and practices mm-hmm. for the soul. Like how do you protect yourself though against that? Because I, I think you would agree that is a temptation that we can fall into and, and how do you kind of balance that out? Yeah. I mean, those are great questions. That's ironic since Jamie K Smith is reformed. Um, <laughs> That's true. But, we, we fight amongst ourselves a lot, John. So <laughs> yes. Um, I love his work. I, I love his stuff. Um, it's interesting that he aims his kind of theology of habituation more at, liturgy than at spiritual disciplines, but I mm. think the mechanism is, is very similar. So a, a couple of thoughts. The first thing I would do is um, agree rather than defend or disagree, you know, agree that those are two potential pitfalls. Now it's classic, just human, not Christian or reformed, just classic human to point out like the slippery slope. Well, if you believe this, then you could go off believing that. And if you follow Mm. that logic, then we would never believe anything. Mm. So that doesn't invalidate the point. It just shows what you need to guard against. But that's where I would really agree. You know, two things that you could um, easily go wrong with would be one could be self-help. Um, now that would be a gross misunderstanding of the spiritual disciplines and that would be a selective use of them. You know, it's hard to make fasting about self-help, you know, or, um, secrecy or simplicity where you own less things and generosity where you give most of your money away or service to the poor. It's hard. But what I would say to that is just, you know, if at the root of the human problem is self-will, you know, the, and, and reformers have done re- Reform thinking has done great, you know, Augustine, which I kind of think of as the original Calvinist, uh, you know, his whole stuff on like sin is the self turned in on itself, you know, and disordered desire, all that kind of great Augustinian theology. So if the root of the human problem is self-will, then this like sin, and this is where I'm really grateful, the reform tradition, even though I stand outside of it. I'm really grateful for its robust like grasp of human sin. Mm. And, uh, you know, we corrupt, 
I'm thinking right now of the reformed theologian Cornelius Plantinga, who his book was really influential on my book, um, A Breverie of Sin. I think is that, is that the title? What's the title of the sin? Uh, I'm forgetting the title. I think that's the subtitle, but he has a phenomenal book on sin. And you have to be really nerdy to read a book on sin, but I did, <laughs> and it was excellent. But you know, he just talks about how it's like it's like a contagious disease, and everything we it's corrupted. But everything we touch is corrupted. So even when we come to try to heal, we corrupt the very thing we're trying to heal. Mm. So anything that Christians do, from church planting to spiritual formation to missions work, can so easily be corrupted by kind of the human self will mm. and formation. What that looks like in the formation, and we could apply what that looks like to church planting, what that looks like to church leadership, what that looks like to community. You could apply it to anywhere. So, and that doesn't mean. We we shouldn't plant churches or lead churches or be in community or do theology. It just means here's what you watch out for. What that looks like in formation is, yeah, it can easily accidentally slip into just like a project self hmm. with Jesus there to kind of make you a better person or almost like a Christian version of Buddhism where like here's some mindfulness and some good tips and techniques to become a nicer, happier person over time, which by the way, I'm not against that. And I think we would agree there are some reform people that, that probably should be nicer and happier. <laughs> uh, so I think that's a pretty safe criticism. Uh, so I'm not all over people are like, yeah, it's yeah. just about becoming a nice, happy person. I'm like, yeah, and maybe you should consider that. <laughs> that's the greatest, that's the greatest <laughs> turntables yeah. I've heard on that. So. Uh, exactly. Um, so that's not a bad thing, but that is, that is barely even the surface of Christian discipleship, which begins mm. with death to self, take up your cross. So um, first I would acknowledge, yes, it can easily lie into project self, Christian self-help. And there's so much Christian self-help in the American church right now that it's hard not to get sucked into that kind of a stuff or to throw the baby out with the bathwater and just somehow justify emotional unhealth and even toxicity in the name of, you know, I'm dying to self or whatever nonsense. And to the other per, uh, cha charge of legalism, yes, you have to massively keep that before, like in my teaching and preaching, I have to work so freaking hard mm. to keep the why of, um, of the gospel of the kingdom before people's minds so that uh, these aren't just legalistic, you know, rules yeah. by which people. So we're always just like viewing it, you know, spiritual disciplines are like what date night is to a marriage. It's a discipline that without it, your marriage will, will struggle without some kind of a, a discipline, whether it's a date night or some kind of just a connect point. But the why is we want to have a healthy marriage. We want to become loving people. We want to be intimate over a long period of time. So the, the, the date night, the discipline in my wife, you know, and I, it's every Thursday night, that's just a means to an end. So the disciplines are all means to an end. You know, Willard used to say that in the age to come, we won't have spiritual disciplines or a rule of life anymore because we won't need them. Theoretically, we could mature to such a place that we no longer need spiritual disciplines because they're just like training wheels and we're so in the spirit of God. Now, I think that's kind of saying like Steph Curry can mature to a place where he doesn't need to do exercises anymore, but um, he probably still starts his warm up with some dribbling routines, you know, he because does. you never, at some point, you just never mature beyond the basics. <laughs> yes. So I don't ever see myself maturing beyond needing morning scripture and prayer mm -hmm. and Sabbath and tithing, stuff like that. But theoretically, you could, you know, because the point of all of this is just intimacy with God and love. But my greatest, you know, so that's the nice part. You just got the nice thing. You just got me agreeing with you. Here's where I would disagree with the reform tradition. I think yes. there is a, and here's where I'll, I'll you can edit all of this out. No, can, no, no. This I is will the good stuff, John. Remotely offended. <laughs> I think that um, N.T. Wright's critique and many others now, from Michael Gorman to Timothy Kembeas, I think is how you say his last name, some some of the top Paul scholars in the world right now. I think their critique of the reformed understanding of justification. I think it's right, or at least deserves a very serious hearing. And I think there's a major problem in reform theology with discipleship and formation, because this is, I think, the, the fatal flaw of early reformed thinking that I think you could correct and still be reformed. But this, I think this has to get dealt with. The, the confusion and collation of effort and earning into the same thing, create a massive problem. So, you know, Willard used to say, grace isn't opposed to effort, it's opposed to earning. Mm -hmm. But when you're reading of Paul, you know, salvation is by grace through faith, 
not by works. If you interpret grace as unmerited favor, which I do not think is the right interpretation, mm -hmm. faith as intellectual assent, and works as self-effort in general, you have a major problem with discipleship and formation because mm -hmm. following Jesus is something you do. And if you've been told your whole life, this is not about what you do, it's about what's been done for you, language never used by Jesus, never used by Paul, never used by the church for over a thousand years, then all of a sudden you're told to do things. You're told following Jesus is something you do. And so is reading your Bible and praying and, and you know, Sabbath and serving the poor. These are all things you do. And um, so that creates, a, a, I think, an intellectual problem as opposed to grace being interpreted as the empowering presence of God to be who God made you to be and do what God called you to do. Faith being loyalty and allegiance to Jesus as king of the kingdom and works being Judaic, mosaic, ethnic-based codes like circumcision and kosher diet. That's a totally different reason. That's a different, you know, saying you're not, you're saved by unmerited favor through believing the right things about God, not by self-effort is different than saying you're saved by the empowering presence of the spirit of God in you to enable you to be in who, be what God made you to be, do what God made you to do through loyalty and allegiance to Jesus as king, not by being Jewish, keeping kosher or being circumcised, but by being made right in the family of God through Jesus' death and resurrection, becoming part of this new Jew plus Gentile family, this new humanity, being transformed by the spirit to live as an outpost of heaven on earth, to live as an advanced sign of what's happening for the whole earth through your own transformation into the image of Jesus. That's a different interpretation of the same verse. So I just stepped on all the golden cows, but I, <laughs> wow. that's, my, no, that's my opinion. Wanted you to keep preaching there. Well, I do think that Western paradigm that tends to be innocence guilt, and that's kind yes. of like how you work with the gospel. I do find that to be landing less, uh, or it's less relevant in how it yes. lands on the people in the church. And it tends to have more that Eastern honor shame yes. that I think people just experience. I mean, cancel culture, just an example of us in a sense you know, mm -hmm. shaming and so forth. Do you sense that too? I'm not sure if it's just an Asian thing or do you feel like a Western thing is happening where shame and honor that's kind of rising more or becoming something that lands on us more or is more relevant? Yes, I have been reading a ton about Asian culture about this because I think you're absolutely right that, you know, this is where the reformed movement not, not even went wrong, just where it was limited. We all read the right. Bible through our lens in history. And, uh, you know, the reformers were living in a white, Western, guilt, innocence, judicial kind of culture. And that's not the modern culture that we're living in now. And it's definitely not first century Jewish culture. Hmm. I mean, at all, you know, so that's N.T. Wright's whole read on justification. Yes, it's a legal metaphor, but it's an Old Testament legal metaphor. That's actually where Israel is standing against the nations in this heavenly courtroom motif. And they're declared to be on the right, like they're vindicated by God as the people of God. So the, the legal motif is set inside this Old Testament drama, people of God, ethnic motif, you know. So yes, that's a long way of saying yes, I could not agree more. I think the West is moving toward an honor shame culture slash has made significant like leaps forward in that direction through social media hmm. and through progressivism, which is now 100% operating off of kind of honor shame dynamics. And so this is where, you know, you as Asian Americans, we have so much to learn from you about how to navigate this space, about what fidelity to Jesus looks like in this space when now there's extraordinary social pressure to conform. And all of a sudden, like the teachings of Jesus that are almost like anti-family uh, start to make way more sense when you realize, oh, wow, he's calling people to go against the wider culture. I mean, you the way that the progressive uh, ideologies around sexuality and gender work is 100% honor shame. So you see that, you know, it's not enough for LGBTQ mm -hmm. neighbors, friends, even brothers and sisters to have no legal discrimination, which is that's a guilt innocence. All right. So now you're not mm -hmm. guilty. You can sleep with whoever you want. You could be married to whoever you want. You now have no legal discrimination against you. That's not enough. 
the point of pride is no, we need the entire mm. culture to not only affirm, but celebrate our redefinition of marriage, sexuality, and now gender itself. And if you don't, you're a phobic bigot. That's honor shame dynamics a hundred percent because to question you know, uh, a morality is now to question a person's identity and community and sense of belonging in the world. So it's, I mean, in my city, it's interesting to see the death of Christmas and the rise of pride. Christmas is now like kind of a depressing time of year. And most people just think about how screwed up their family is and how lonely they are. If you just look at like Christmas decorations every year, there's less and less and less and less and less. And now pride went from like a parade to a day to a week to a month. Now it's like a two or three month long kind of experience in the city. So that I think is a great example of honor, shame, like beginning to move into Western culture. Real quickly, how do you make sense of the fact that we're becoming more individualized though? And yet honor and shame, which is traditionally more of a communal thing. Like, why is that rising? Do you think it's because even though we're individualized, we're associating ourselves with tribes and we tend to find our identity in the tribes more likely? Or like, it's it's kind of yes. almost seems counterintuitive to me. No, I think Ben Sass, if you've read any of his stuff, his book, Them, and other really good thinkers have done the deep dive research on how the more individualistic America becomes or the West becomes, the more tribal it becomes. And I mean, tribal there in the negative, there's a, there's a positive sense of tribe, right. um, but this is in the negative sense of tribe. So yeah, that's, I think it's because it's both, both are true. Uh, radical individualism has completely taken over our culture. And at the same time, it's a total myth that we're a radical individualist who's just making it up as we go, mm. because all these radical individualists look the same, dress the same, <laughs> vote the same, think the same, would never. You know? but you're so, your own yeah, person. You're your own person. But like when everybody has tattoos and pink hair and studs <laughs> and is voting left on everything, it's like, it's not really that radically individual. You know? It's more, okay, we're all the same radical individual. You know? Now, if you want to be like a radical individualist, like don't celebrate pride hmm. or be stay faithful to your spouse over 50 hmm. years, even if it's not the your dream marriage or don't get a tattoo. <laughs> <laughs> or, you know, be a Christian. No, that, I mean, that's, uh, I mean, that reminds me of what Char Charles Taylor, you know, talks about when he says, you know, it's, it's so, I mean, back then, I mean, it was so hard to be a, an atheist. Yes. You know? Um, and, and now, and now it's, it's, it's hard to be a person of faith at all. Mm -hmm. Exactly. Yeah. Yeah. Um, you know, yeah, I, I, don't, I don't, I don't know if you meant to do this, but, um, Live No Lies kind of felt like, it actually felt in some ways like a continuation of Ruthless Elimination of Hurry. Mm. And, and um, you wouldn't think that because they're, they're about two completely different yes. things. Like One's about Sabbath, Sabbath and to Satan. To Satan. <laughs> <laughs> what happened to the Sabbath guy? <laughs> Live No Lies is most definitely not Christian self-help. Oh. That's true. No, but uh, I mean, I love, I mean, even the title of Ruthless, that title itself kind of points to, it feels like a theme uh, where, you know, even Sabbath isn't something you just fall mm. into because it's kind of what yes. you talked about. It's something that, you know, you almost have to resist the yes. status quo and, and you're, you're moving against it to arrange your life in yes. a certain way that allows counter formation. Yeah. Mm -hmm. It is, was that like planned? And, and is there like, I feel like there's like another book, like a part three in this <laughs> series, but I don't know. So you're asking, am I an evil genius? Uh, well, I don't know about the genius part, but yeah, there is. A, I mean, if there's a master plan, it's this, and this would probably only make sense to me and not like people take my work seriously to need this paradigm, but yes. So basically what I want to give the second half of my life to is formation like that. I just care so deeply about the growth and the healing and the expansion of the soul into a person of love as defined by Jesus through union with the father and the son and the spirit and prayer that, I mean, that's like what I want to give my life to. And in my pastoral experience, so my next book that I'm writing is the first in at least a trilogy. There's talk of it being actually five to seven books long, all on formation and discipleship. Mm. So I'm going away on sabbatical. On sabbatical, I will write my next book, um, which is going to be all about apprenticing under Jesus. And yeah, so that's what I'm going to write in on. That's, I, I plan to basically spend the next 10 years 
writing on formation. Um, the reason I wrote these two books, The Ruthless Elimination of Hurry and Live No Lies, which were on a, a two book contract with my publisher, was in my pastoral experience, there are two major uh, blocks that keep people from even going on the spiritual journey with Jesus hmm. and even letting Jesus form them into his image over a long period of time. The first major obstacle or block was hurry, busyness, chronic overactivity, digital distraction, people on their phones all the time, people exhausted all of the time. Just people are literally, I think I have this quote from my therapist in, in the hurry book, People are too are just too busy to live emotionally healthy and spiritually rich and vibrant lives. Like people are literally too busy to follow Jesus, even if they might be a Christian in their mind, you know? So that was the first book. And then this most recent book is the second major block I see in people's spiritual journey is just living with these secular assumptions about what is good and beautiful and true. And a blatant word there would be lies. A, a more gracious way of saying that is these secular narratives about what is good and beautiful and true that make people not even want to go on the journey with Jesus. So, you know, in my preaching, I preach off of a Venn diagram of biblical theology, spiritual formation, and cultural commentary. The reason for the cultural commentary is biblical theology is teaching people what God has commanded them to do. Spiritual formation, by that I mean teaching people how to obey what Jesus has commanded them to do, um, which is not by willpower, it's by habituation and the spirit and community. But if people don't, if people have been co-opted by secular definitions of what's good and beautiful and true, they will not want to know what God has commanded or how to obey what God has commanded. And they will live into alternative narratives, alternative gospels. Everybody's preaching a gospel, not just Christians. Vegans are preaching a gospel. Progressives are preaching a gospel. Conservatives are preaching a gospel. Materialists are preaching a gospel. Communists are preaching a gospel. Everybody's preaching their gospel. And if people have been co-opted by other gospels, by other narratives, then they're never even going to go on the journey of being, you know, if Jesus is inviting you to discover a life free from lust, and free from the need for sexual gratification to be a happy and joyful and to allow your desire even for sexuality to be transformed into a desire for communion and contribution. You're never even gonna go on that journey of extraordinary wholeness, healing and freedom if you've been, if you bought into both the left and the right's secular version of sexuality. Mm -hmm. And so that's where I think Live No Lies was an attempt to kind of do an expose on some of these cultural narratives that hold us back from the journey of formation in Jesus. So the three of us, we sometimes joke that you and John Tyson and Richard Vidalis, like you guys are whether intentionally or unintentionally starting a new tribe. And we jokingly call you guys the spiritual formation tribe, where <laughs> it seems like the focus, it's not just information, but it's formation. Yes. It's not just emphasizing the word, but it's also emphasizing the spirit. It's not just seeking loving one another as a church, but engaging the surrounding culture. And it kind of almost reminds me of like when the young young restless reform movement kind of started or even like the emerging emerging church started to take place except you guys seem less angry and less frustrated <laughs> it seems like you know something but something's happening and do you do you think that's like an accurate description do you sense like god is doing something so i feel like the works that you guys are putting out it is resonating differently than perhaps like the works that we're used to handing out people yes. with the different books that we give like do you feel like God's doing something that you're kind of filling a gap that seems to have been missing in the past few years or even overemphasis before that needs to now shift. And like, for example, the spirit needs to be emphasized. Like, is this something you guys sense that's taking place? Yeah. I mean, first off, I'm honored to be listed with such extraordinary people like that. And I love and respect both of those men. Um, secondly, there's no like, you know, strategic plan to start a new thing. Although we are now starting to talk and pray and dream about that. Um, but with a, a lot of hopefully patience and humility, just like, because of just honest, another word for humility is just self-awareness. <laughs> um, but yeah, I mean, I think, I think how I would say it is just, 
we feel there are certain responses of the spirit to our cultural or cultural climate that we don't see as much of in the wider Western church that we really want to see. Mm. And, you know, if you look at, um, so if you take tribe in the positive sense of that word, like the Seth Godin, you know, sense of tribe, um, which in the positive connotation, you know, in the American church, and maybe that's too emotionally shot of a word streams, maybe, or whatever a non-emotionally loaded word would be, you know, there are a couple tribes or streams of the American church. You know, you have the kind of neo-Pentecostal, you know, movement, which is where most well-known young leaders are right now. You have the reformed gospel coalition, you know, stream, which is, which has done so much good. I mean, I have some theological issues, but I also have a lot of respect and gratitude for in particular for its intellectual hmm. deposit, you know, into the wider church and it, it's, and it's fidelity to Jesus and to the authority of the new Testament. Then you have the um, kind of church growth uh, leadership kind of, you know, whether that's like a Craig Rochelle or Andy Stanley's people, just brilliant leaders, very much middle America, suburban kind of context, doing great work. You could argue that progressives are another tribe, but I, I don't think they're faithful Christians and they mostly leave the church, not mm. start churches. So it's mostly like a, it is its own shoot thing. off, a break it's off, a shoot off, you know? Mm. Um, so I, I do think in that landscape, there's a bunch of us that just do not fit into those streams and uh, whether it's theologically or our context. And what I discovered, and this happened a number of years ago, was I started making friends with other pastors in secular cities because these cities are so freaking hard to follow Jesus in, much less pastor churches in. And so, you know, you meet another pastor from New York, San Francisco or LA or Vancouver, BC or London or Melbourne. And you're like, okay, so let's, we live in this similar world. Much of the American kind of pastoral church world is coming from the South and which is, which is not bad at all. You know, I was just in the South recently and I'm like, this is, this is another world. <laughs> I mean, it just feels like hmm. it's another world. Whereas when I go to London, it just feels like Portland, but bigger with cool accents. You know, hmm. when I go to the South, I'm like, this is another world. I, that's not a judgment call. That's not, I'm not saying that's good or bad hmm. at all. And most of this is really good, but it's just, it's just, it's coming from such a different culture than where the three of you are at and where I'm at, you know? So um, I started just, we started kind of finding ourselves in these secular cities and a lot of us weren't in denominations or tribes. And so we felt lonely. I felt super lonely and tribeless. And so we started just kind of making friends and building relationship and, and realizing, man, we really want to do friendship as a part of how we do leadership. And, and, you know, we all came of age in a time where celebrity pastor scandals are the norm. The rule not the exception to the rule it's like every few months another well-known one drops mm. and it's like we go into this like three days of grieving you know and um it's such a tragedy and so part of our response is all right how do we not let that become our story not that any of us are celebrities but how do we not let the scandal the breakdown the you know whether it's adultery or heresy or power dynamics or whatever it's just it's the story is exhausting and so depressing you know mm. So we kind of found each other and just started trying to kind of, so we're kind of asking, how do we go the distance and not blow our lives up? And how do we be good husbands and fathers and past, and how do we serve well in this difficult kind of cultural climate? And so we just started doing life together. But what we realized was that our churches were all eerily similar <laughs> with no celebrity pastor, no conference, no website, no even theological, you know, landing page no denomination, no structure. You'd walk into our churches and it felt like walking into a denomination or something. It was so similar. And I think it was actually because we were in similar cultural contexts and we mm. were just following the spirit of Jesus, adapting to that. And in our cultural moment and age where now we have access to, this is one of my favorite things about living in our twin 2021, which has all sorts of challenges, but I love the gift that the digital, that the internet and globalism is to the church because all the, all, all church tribes are basically started at a time and place in history with an ethnic group or more recently in like the secret sensitive, not with an ethnic group as much as with like a demographic group in American culture. And I don't say that as a criticism at all, but now we get the best, you know, like, obviously you guys are in the reform movement. There's a huge emphasis on like 
you know, European kind of thinkers in the 16th, 17th century, you know? And Calvin was in Geneva and like Luther was in Germany. And there's lots of those kind of cultural overtones in that movement. Now the gift is like, I can, I can study 2000 years of church history. Mm. I can read like saints and sages from two millennia. And I can like get on the internet and learn from people in Nigeria and South Korea and Japan and Malaysia and like and, and now I can like start learning about honor culture from people that are in an honor culture. You know, this is an extraordinary help and gift to me. And so I think we came of age where we don't have to so much pick one kind of tribe. We can kind of almost pull from the best of the Christian tradition around the world right now and down through history. So that's, I think, why I just I read a lot of church history and I love it. And I'm really trying to grow. I mean, I just read a book. One of my, the best book, I would probably the best book I read last year was by a Catholic Cardinal from Ghana. And it was this book that, I mean, I, I couldn't, you know, it's like you said, like I stopped underlining because it was like every single line I wanted to underline, memorize, put into a sermon. I mean, it was just like, I'm like, what? And it was a non-Western book. It wasn't linear. It wasn't even structured like a Western book. And what I learned from reading that was just, I mean, such a gift. And that's so far uh, a Catholic from Ghana is totally outside of my paradigm. And yet I was so enriched by it. Hmm. So anyway, I just think there's some gifts in this moment. You could have kept talking and would have kept nodding your head. I think everything you're talking about, I got to get myself feel, to shut up. No, 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 no. Because I, 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 I would even kind of to, to encourage you, I think all three of us have felt tribeless. And I think your yeah. point that much of what we learn from ultimately comes from the South which again, isn't a bad or good thing. It's just, that's just kind of light bulb went off, especially as Asian Americans, as minority yes. Christians. Yes. We've been taught that the whole time and we thought that was the way to do church. But I think even okay. you stepping out of that is really helpful. And I guess one question I'd, I'd ask you too is like, what would you tell someone that is tribalist, like that, that maybe is a pastor or a Christian at a church that doesn't, you know, maybe they don't fit in with that church or the pastor doesn't feel like, man, I don't have any networks around me, like what recommendations would you give to them to kind of cling on to Christ still and, and to find like-minded friends or brothers or sisters in, in the faith? I've never thought about that question, which is dangerous to answer it. Let me just say a couple of things that come to mind. One would be don't expect that tension to go away. You know, so I would imagine if we had more time, I could ask you questions and you could talk about, you know, the experience of being Asian American. I don't know your family's history, like at what point your family immigrated to America, how far that back it goes. But I just know from some of the Asian Americans in my own church, like those that are second generation, I mean, they have the problem that I have where most of the church is, you know, based on a previous time in the South not a current time in a Portland, they have that tension and they have their ethnic yes. tension. Yes. You know what I mean? So it's like, they're hearing it from the South and they're hearing it from like their grandparents experience of, you know, mm. Korea or mm. wherever mm. China or whatever, we're, you know? So I feel like you're we're also, very, we're, we're, we're very confused. We're very confused. <laughs> we're a confused, traumatized generation. <laughs> <laughs> so I would imagine, I mean, maybe, I mean, please push back on this. I, I would imagine that, that's probably a tension that you have to make peace with at some level. You know, you're probably right. not going to like just completely emotionally get to the spot where you're like, Nope, I feel 120% at home and this is my place and these are my people. And, you know, and I think all of America is kind of dealing with that. I mean, a gracious mm -hmm. interpretation, <laughs> very gracious interpretation of the make America great thing again is white working class people that are feeling that disequilibrium, both from globalization and their jobs being moved overseas, uh, immigration and people from different ethnic cultures coming into what was a very homogenous culture to them and from liberals in cities like Portland co-opting their cultural narratives and shaming them. And so, you know what I mean? Those three things together make them feel incredibly scared yeah. and scared people are easily manipulated by political figures hmm. because if you can give people an enemy, they can, they can have an object. You know, I read this fascinating study a while back on the psychology of enemies and why we all have enemies. And part of it is like enemies actually make us feel more safe. Like this research on this is a tangent, but they did this research where they would take people and they'd put enemies in front of them. It could be like an 
you know, a, a ISIS terrorist, or if it was a Republican, they'd put a Democrat up, picture up, or if it was a Democrat or Republican picture up, which is basically the same thing in people's yes, emotional yes, view right yes. now. And then they would rate their feeling of safety and people felt safer and more in control of their life after seeing a picture of their enemy wow. because it gives a, a name and a fate an object for people to project their fear on and then and then they can give a narrative to this is what's wrong with the world and if we can stop this then i can feel safe wow. so enemies serve this psychological coping mechanism to for us to deal with our fear humans are fear-based creatures uh, and fear is antithetical to love. And that's why this spiritual journey is about moving from fear to love. That's a whole other sermon series. Sure. Uh, and to your question, I think just naming the, you're probably not going to erase that tension. You're probably going to feel it. So maybe make peace with it and just, you know, breathe it in and breathe it out and just say, okay, God, give me grace for this. Second would be, you know, looking for a tribe at a national level is probably an intellectual attempt to solve an emotional relational problem, which is just the need for friends and community to belong to. And so, you know, it's cool that the three of you have found each other. And that doesn't mean that you don't need to be a part of a larger, you know, church tribe or whatever that you're just like, I'm, I will swing the flags and the banners until I die. That'd be great. But it's probably really mean. I would, I would imagine. Maybe you all hate each other. I don't know. But it's probably <laughs> meaningful. It's just a business. That, it's just a business for us. It's just a business <laughs> that you found each other. Yeah, you know. Yeah, and yeah. I think again, the more individualistic people become, the more tribal they become. They become. You know, I asked somebody that I really respect um, who studies this kind of stuff. I won't say who, but, you know, to help me un understand conspiracy theories, like it's just bizarre to me that people believe conspiracy theories. And, and again, I increasingly think there are, there's an example of that on the left as well as the right. And his answer was that for so many people, they have so few real world relationships and their most of their relational experiences online and, and you believe what your community believes. And so for these people, their online, you know, QAnon like rabbit hole is their primary experience of community, which is where sure. they get their identity and their sense of self and belonging from. Sure. And so they're, that's more real to them than mm. the world outside their door. Mm. And so that's a compassionate read of, man, people are that lonely and that cut yeah. off from real life relationships, community. So I think that would yeah. be a second piece is cultivate meaningful relationships. And then the third thing I think would just be pray and work to see what you feel God has put in your heart uh, come to bear on the larger society. So myself and, you know, my C-Rock guys, we don't have some, uh, you know, 10 year plan to start a tribe in America and take down the gospel coalition or not at all. <laughs> we actually read their articles on a regular basis. And, and even though we disagree with some of the theology, we all kind of wish we were Tim Keller and we're very good. <laughs> Who but we do have seven things that we want with our life and our work and our prayer to seed in the larger church in the West. And we mm -hmm. literally have one every single day, seven days a week that we pray for huh. and that we contend with God for. And we're doing our best through our work, through our leadership, through our preaching, through our collective activists, you know, act, um, activities to kind of seed the larger church, which some of these things that we just care about and yeah. we want to see more sure. in the church. Yeah. Well, thanks so much, Sean. I, I just wanted an informational answer, but I felt ministered from the answer. So <laughs> yeah. thank you for that. I don't want to take up too much of your time. I know we, we oh, probably it's did been a little. such a joy. But yeah, thank you so much for coming on, John. It's my honor. I'm sorry I got to go, but I'm going to go hang with Tyler and uh, we're going to take a walk. It's a beautiful fall day in Portland. And, and uh, I hope to be with you guys in person at some point soon. Of course. Thank you so much. Thank you so much. Really appreciate, appreciate it. it. Thanks, guys. Hope it serves Thanks. you well. Peace to yeah. you. Thank you. Thank you.